Look with me, please, Philippians chapter 1, and this morning we will be reading verses 3 through 11 together. Philippians chapter 1, beginning of verse 3. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making requests with joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, unto the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Father, we bow humbly before you this day, thanking you for the privilege to gather here in this place as we do. We thank you for every that is gathered here together, and we pray that we might have hearts that are prepared as the soil for the seed to be planted. May our hearts be prepared to receive the truth of your word, and may your spirit provide discernment as only he can, and understanding as only he can, by the power of the truth that is before us, to minister your grace in each and every one of us according to the scriptures as you have provided them to us. And Father, we ask today that as we proclaim your word, may Christ truly be revealed or manifested as he is revealed. May we be faithful to proclaim his truth and his preeminence and his excellency as the word of God declares him to be. And Lord, may you give us ears to hear, hearts to receive, eyes to see. And as far as the declaration of your truth is this morning, we pray that our very words which come from our mouth and the meditation that upon which we ponder within our hearts, our very thoughts, might be pleasing in your sight, O God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you and be seated. Within verses 9 through 11 of this chapter, this first chapter of Philippians, Paul lays a foundation, as I've explained since the beginning of our study of this epistle, he lays a foundation for the remaining truths which he will emphasize throughout the epistle in his prayer for these Philippian believers in this portion of the text in which he's praying for them or expounding upon his prayer for them. In Philippians 1, 9 through 11, he says, And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of of God. As I've pointed out over the past several weeks of this study, the implication of Paul's statement, approve things that are excellent, it means to regard something as genuine or worthy based on testing or on that thing being proven. And Paul explains that he desires in this prayer for the Philippian believers, he is desiring that these Philippian believers recognize and regard the things which are proven to be excellent. 
In other words, that you consider and understand and seek and follow after the things that are of considerable value, that are distinctive, or in one word to sum it up, that which is superior. As I previously mentioned and explained, the greatest demonstration of the predominant emphasis of this epistle, which is that they are to approve those things which are excellent, is expressed in chapter 3 when Paul declares that he has forsaken all inferior things for that which is excellent or superior to all other things. And in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 10, he says, But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ, yea, or yes, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency, again, which means superior in value or to be of surpassing or exceptional value, for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I suffer the loss of all things and do count them but dung that I may win Christ, and be found in him not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Notice Paul says, I count all things as loss to know Christ. And Paul is simply saying here what he is emphasizing throughout this epistle for these Philippian believers to follow after as well. He is saying, I understand that everything, all things, are inferior to knowing Jesus Christ. And when he makes this statement, he's not merely saying to know Jesus in salvation. He's not just saying, oh, that I can be saved. That's not what he's saying. He is saying it is superior to know Christ in the riches and depths of of the truth of his revelation in his word that I may know him, he says in verse 10, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. So Paul says, my greatest desire is to know Jesus. He's already a believer. He's an apostle. He's a follower of Christ. He's saying, but yet I want to know all there is to know of him as much as I can know of him. I desire to seek and follow after that. He said, this is what is excellent. This is what is superior. Everything else is inferior to this. Nothing compares, and that's what Paul is saying. And that's the intent of this epistle, to reveal this truth. Last week we began the first study of the second division within chapter 1 of this epistle, in which, which consists of verses 3 through 11, which we've just read. And in the study last week, we observed first Paul's expression of thankfulness for the Philippian believers. He said in verse 3, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. And there are two implications within Paul's statement, every remembrance of you. First, Paul is expressing that these believers are personally precious to him and that they are ever in his thoughts and ever in his prayers. And then second, Paul rejoices at any mention of these believers. And we looked even, such as other passages of other epistles Paul has written where he mentions this very truth about those when they are spoken of, he rejoices greatly for God's faithful work in them. And Paul is expressing the same truth here. Second, Paul's reason for his thankfulness concerning the Philippian believers, verses 4 and 5. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making requests with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul explained that the Philippians were not only continually in his thoughts, but more importantly, they remained in his prayers. And Paul declared the reason for his joy when praying for this church in verse 5. And we're going to really focus in on this this morning as we continue through the study. For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul rejoiced not because of his confidence in the Philippian believers, but because of the evidence of faith 
being demonstrated by their continued fellowship in the gospel, in which Paul placed all confidence, as he explained in the following verse, again, reviewing from last week, which brings us to number three, the confidence behind Paul's thankfulness for the testimony of the Philippian believers in verse six. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. So Paul's confidence was not in the Philippians. His confidence was in the faithfulness of Christ, who dwelt within these believers in Philippi. And the evidence of this faithfulness, the evidence of this this work of God, God's faithfulness in them was being manifested and demonstrated in and through their lives as they continued in this fellowship of the gospel. So Paul is saying, God is faithful to complete this work which he has begun, and he goes on to explain, I have absolute confidence that he is going to do this. He will perform this. But the evidence of the presence of God at the moment was being manifested in their lives as they were participants, as they were partakers and fellowshipping in the gospel. And so Paul is explaining that here. Before we progress our study into further verses of this chapter, we left off in verse 6 last week, I want to further establish the significance of the truth we examined last week in verse 6. Paul knew, again, it was Christ who authored the faith of these believers, and that it was Jesus who would perfect this work of faith within them. Throughout the Scriptures, we are continually reminded that it is Jesus who initiates, it is Jesus who performs, and it is Jesus who perfects God's redemption in us. In Hebrews 12, 2, looking unto Jesus, the author, the originator, the one who gives faith, his, he, faith is sourced from him, and finisher of faith. Finisher is perfecter. He performs and perfects faith. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Even that statement alone, if you know anything about Hebrews, you understand the significance. That he who is our high priest is now set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Why? Because it is finished. And the sacrifice is pleasing in the sight of God the Father. The work is complete, unlike the Old Testament high priest who went into the most holy place and had to leave the most holy place, and every year had to go back into the most holy place and then leave the holy place. Here we have Jesus who's entered into the true holy of holies, which is before the very Father, God the Father, and he is set at the right hand of God the Father, and in doing so, the work is complete. Faith has both been initiated, faith is being performed in time in our lives, and faith is perfected in Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. Paul says, The very God of peace sanctify you wholly. Holy as in W-H-O-L-L-Y. Sanctified completely. And I pray your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And verse 24. Faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. I'm just going to stop here for a moment. We're going to read some more verses. But let me say this. You and I both should be equally thankful that not only our salvation, but our sanctification really has nothing to do with us at all. It is the faithfulness of He who has begun the work. God is going to present us before Himself, before Christ, as a bride, as one who is chaste, as one who is blameless. And we're going to come before Him, not because of anything we do or do not do, but all because of what Christ has done. This is all hinged on Him, not on us. But I will say this at the same time, and you know this to be true. 
when we understand that this is all hinged on Christ and this work is being performed in us that is already perfected and one day will be realized to be perfected, it changes us and how we live. It does. The reality of this truth transforms us. We are being conformed to the image of Christ in and through time. But positionally, I'm already seated in the heavenlies with and in Christ Jesus. So it's a done, finished work, but yet in time it's being realized. 1 Corinthians 1, 4 through 9. I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ, that in everything ye are enriched by him in all utterance and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. The testimony of Christ is being confirmed in them so that ye come behind in no gift, Paul says, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 8, he says, Who, God, who shall also confirm you unto the end, establish you unto the end, that ye may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom ye were called unto the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Here's the bottom line. We are not faithful. We may sometimes look like we're faithful. We may sometimes be more so faithful than other times. But you and I are not faithful. But God is faithful. And everything hinges on God and His faithfulness, not on ours. Thank God for that truth. 1 Peter 1.5 Who? Those begotten unto a lively hope in Jesus Christ, the previous verses explain. Who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Jude verse 24 and 25. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God our Savior be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever. Amen. And then Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Paul writes, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So Paul isn't saying here, okay, I try to do a better job at being a Christian. No. He says, look, you are simply to submit to the work that God is already doing in you that that then may be lived out as you walk in life. So God is faithful. He is the author. He is the perfecter of faith. He is the author. He's the perfecter of our redemption. He is the author. He's the perfecter of our sanctification. He is the author and the perfecter of our eternity. He redeems. He preserves. He protects. He provides. He is faithful. And it is in the faithfulness of God that we have confidence. For we know that it is by God and for God that we are redeemed, that we are sanctified and preserved. So if we are to understand the significance of Paul's statement in verse 7, as we continue our study this evening, or this morning, maybe this evening before we're done, we must read it in conjunction with the previous four verses while giving specific attention to verse 5. Verse 3. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making requests with joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work, and you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. So Paul's expression of thanksgiving for the church at Philippi, again, is centered in their fellowship in the gospel, as declared in verse 5. And as we continue reading into verse 7, we discover that Paul expounds on the truth of what it means to have fellowship in the gospel. The now translated fellowship in verse 5 means participation. The question then to be answered is this. 
What does fellowship or participation in the gospel look like? And what does it produce within the lives of those who are participants in the gospel? First, we see fellowship in the gospel provides unity within the body of Christ. Look at verse 7. Even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. Paul's thoughts of the Philippian church were precious to him due to the relationship he shared with them in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, we, he's saying here that, that it is proper, it is appropriate, it is not some unique thing for me to think the way I do of you, but here's the reason why. Because I have you in my heart, but why does he have them in his heart? Because both in his bonds and in the defense and in the confirmation of the gospel, they partook in this grace and in the fellowship of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul says, you are side by side with me. You are with me. Whether you're presently with me physically or not, I know that you are with me in your support. I know you are with me in your prayers. I know that you are where God has you to be in declaring and in the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he says, you partake with me in this. You're in my heart. No matter what the situation is, There is unity. And what is the unity? It's not because they were all imprisoned. It's not because they all went to the same church gathering or fellowship. Their unity is centered in the gospel. Fellowship in the gospel. It is not uncommon for people to gravitate towards others who share in the same interest as they do. However, having the same interest in the same thing can also become a breeding ground for contention. And this is clearly seen and demonstrated even in Paul's further statements within this letter. Look with me in chapter 1, verse 14. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So Paul is saying here, I'm getting ahead of myself, but Paul is saying that because he is imprisoned, it has resulted in others being confident in declaring the gospel. And if Paul's in prison, I may end up in prison too, but you know what? God is faithful. And so it, it gave them confidence and strength and boldness in the gospel. But then he goes on to say, verse 15, some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preach Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What then? Notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. So here Paul's saying, there are those who preach with the intent just to add to my affliction, maybe because Paul was limited in his ability to, uh, for the first of the gospel, in his bonds, meaning he had a limited audience. (laughs) He couldn't go anywhere else. He couldn't do anything else. Here he is. While others would preach and proclaim, he says, and some do it to my own injury, meaning they do it out of envy or strife. Maybe they are jealous not of Paul's imprisonment, but they're, they're jealous of Paul's apostleship. They're, they're jealous of Paul's evangelization. They are jealous of how God has chosen Paul for this work. He said, and, but yet they're preaching Christ. And if they are preaching Christ, then I rejoice nonetheless, Paul says. But here's what I want you to understand. Just because they were all preaching the gospel did not mean that they were in the same spirit with the same purpose. And Paul is explaining that this actually could become a breeding ground for contention. So Paul explains that through his imprisonment, Christ was preached. 
Yet some of those who preached Christ, having the same message and having been given the same commission by God, preached Christ out of jealousy or envy. And this example shows us again that though two may be joined together in the same interest, it doesn't mean that they are in unity. However, Paul explains explains to these Philippians his joy over the Philippian believers as they were united with him. They were in fellowship with him in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul further expressed this in his closing statements to the Philippians in this very epistle. In Philippians 4.10, he says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein ye were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. So what he's saying here is you, you were anxious to still minister to me, but there was not the opportunity to do so. Paul spoke of the Macedonian churches supplying his need in the ministry of the gospel in his epistle to the church at Corinth. 2 Corinthians 11.9 And when I was present with you and wanted... I was chargeable to no man. For that which was lacking to me, the brethren which came from Macedonia supplied. And in all things I have kept myself from being burdensome unto you, and so will I keep myself. So while the Corinthians, he's ministering to the Corinthians, but the Corinthians aren't even concerned in helping to meet his actual physical needs, whatever they may be. He said, but that's okay. He said, because the churches in Macedonia, which Philippi is a chief city in Macedonia. He's saying they ministered to me. So the Philippian church was obviously in fellowship or the participation of the gospel and work of the gospel with Paul. This unity can only result by fellowship together in the same gospel, which is to say participation with the same purpose, not only the same work. In other words, while there were those who preached Christ of contention, as we've read, the Philippians not only preached the same message, but were engaged with Paul in the same purpose of this work of the gospel. This past week, I spoke to Dr. Harley Howard. I called him randomly. And strangely enough, I found out as we are talking, we are both preaching through Philippians. We both started it the same Sunday. And last week, he preached verses 3, as did I. And so we made a deal. I'll listen to yours, you listen to mine. And that's exactly what we did. And it is uncanny, not really, how similar they are. We, we are different, of course, but the truth of the message being exactly the same. In our discussions, we discovered that was the case, hence we both agreed to listen to each other and and see where we were. Dr. H. stated that someone who claims in his last week's message, which is worthy to repeat, he said when someone claims to be in fellowship with the church, and yet they are not joined in participation with the work and ministry of the church regarding the gospel. They are not in fellowship with the church or the gospel at all. So while there are people who claim to be in fellowship with the church, claim to be in fellowship with Christ, claim to be in fellowship with the gospel, Paul is actually making a distinction here with these Philippian believers saying, you are joined with me in the gospel. You provide when there is need. You are declaring. You are serving where God has put you. You are ministering in the gospel. And I must agree, fellowship in the gospel provides unity in the work in the support and the propagation of the gospel. In other words, the point being made by Dr. H., which I will repeat, is this. Just because you come and sit on a Sunday morning does not mean you're in fellowship in the work of the gospel. Two, fellowship in the gospel also produces godly affection within the body of Christ. Verse 8, he goes on to say, For God is my record. How greatly I long after you in all the bowels of Jesus Christ. When people are united, not only in a work, but they also have unity in its purpose, it will produce affection. 
How much more so is this true regarding the gospel? Those who are unified in the purpose of the gospel of Jesus Christ will also have a godly affection produced by the unity of the Spirit of Christ. Within our study of Ephesians, we discovered that it is our responsibility as believers to maintain this unity of the Spirit, which will be sought after in love, which is demonstrated in preferring others over ourselves. In chapter 4, verses 1 through 3 of Ephesians, we read, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, Paul writes, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul is saying here, of course, chapter 4 is the beginning of the practical division of the entire epistle of Ephesians. You who were with us for the last year and a half or so, you know that. And so in chapter 4, he begins this practical living out of the positional truths in the first three chapters of Ephesians. And Paul is saying, because you are in Christ, now this is what it looks like for Christ to be in you. And he says, endeavoring to keep, endeavoring to maintain. In other words, we are to be aware that we already have been given and provided unity in God's Spirit through the gospel, through Christ. We have unity provided by the Spirit of God Endeavoring to keep, endeavoring to maintain is not endeavoring to produce or to create, but it is to understand that we must place effort in making certain that we don't disrupt the unity of the Spirit that is already existent. And that's what Paul is teaching. Paul further expounds upon the same truth in chapter 2 of, the, of the, this epistle to the Philippians. Chapter 2, 1 through 4, notice what he says. If there be any, therefore, any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, unity, having the same love, being of one accord of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. So we are, when we are joined together in the same purpose of God in the gospel, in the unity of God's Spirit, God's love will flow from us to one another in this fellowship of the gospel. People do all sorts of things and put forth all sorts of effort to try to produce some unification. And even churches are guilty of this. Listen, God has given us unity in His Spirit. We are to protect and guard that unity, making certain that we are not allowing anything to disrupt or hinder that which God has already provided. And that's what Paul is teaching here. So when, and, and so what's the best way to do this? Well, it, 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 the best way to do this obviously must be, must, must it be? It has to be that we just don't rub anyone wrong. We make sure that we only speak kind to everyone. We never rebuke. We never, we never correct because, I mean, after all, that, that's going to... That's going to disrupt the unity. No, absolutely not. How do, we are submitted to the fellowship of the gospel. And if we are submitted in the fellowship of the gospel, you know what that means? It means we can receive rebuke and recognize this is biblical truth rebuke, truthful rebuke, and I must submit to this truth. Unity is not something that we produce. Unity is that which God has given. But let it be understood that as we join in fellowship in the work and ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then in doing so, if we have the same mind, the same purpose, the same gospel, that is unity. And that produces love as well, because it's the same God who loves us in which this love is being now demonstrated and manifested in and through us. Number three, fellowship in the gospel cultivates spiritual growth within the body of Christ. Verses 9 and 10. 
And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more. Now, this is interesting. Notice what he says. That your love may abound yet more and more. Interesting, he repeats himself. He's, he's emphasizing the prayer and desire for their love to abound. Oh, and everybody loves that. But look at what he says next. That your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. That ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Do you see what Paul just said? Oh, I want your love to abound more and more in knowledge, in understanding, and in judgment. He says, approving all things that are excellent, recognizing, acknowledging, that the things that are proven to be superior is that which you follow after, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. The progression of Paul's prayer for this church and the emphasis of this epistle he has written to them continues to be seen in these verses as Paul exhorts these believers to continue in love that it may abound more and more in knowledge and judgment. Now the noun judgment in this verse, it simply means discernment. So Paul is saying, I desire that your love continue to grow more and more in knowledge and understanding and in discernment. So Paul Paul spoke to this truth as well in his epistle to the Colossian believers. Colossians 1, 9 and 10. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Paul is repeating himself here. That ye may walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. It is in and by the continued increase of our knowledge and discernment of God as expressed in the Word of God and experienced in the fellowship of the gospel of Jesus Christ that genuine growth occurs. This spiritual growth is indicated in Paul's statement in verse 10. That ye may prove things that are excellent, worth more, superior, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. As we spiritually grow, we are made aware of the superiority of our Lord Jesus Christ, His supremacy, and this work of redemption through the fellowship we share in the gospel of Christ. And in like manner, as we are made increasingly aware of the superiority and supremacy and preeminence of the Lord Jesus Christ, we continue to grow in our fellowship of the gospel of Christ. So being in the fellowship of the gospel doesn't mean that you're preaching to everyone you meet. It means that you are growing in your knowledge and understanding and discernment and fellowship with the Lord. And in doing so, this now flows from you with, as well in love to the church in which you are in fellowship with, but also as you would evangelize those out in the world, as you would proclaim the gospel of Christ, you are doing so being rooted and grounded in truth, and it's all therefore done in love if this is true. Now, we are to be un- in, un- uh, not just united, but in unity of the Spirit in the fellowship of the gospel, as Paul has declared. Then number four, verse 11, fellowship in the gospel yields righteous fruit within the body of Christ. He says, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. Now, those who are participants in the gospel of Christ will bear the spiritual fruit of righteousness. John deals with this in his as well. And this is without exception. We see that Paul emphasized this truth by the grammar he used in verse 11. Notice what he says. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ. This verb, being filled, this verb is in the perfect tense and in the passive voice. And it has what is referred to as an implied or understood you as its subject. So what Paul is saying is this. 
you being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ. The perfect tense is one which signifies that an action has been completed in the past, and yet it has produced a result which continues in one's present state of being. So when he says, you being filled, oh, this was done at the moment of salvation, but yet it's an ongoing reality in the life and one in which righteousness has been imputed. And the passive voice means that the action is performed upon the subject rather or in contrast to an active voice in which the subject performs the action. So notice, he doesn't say, you fill yourself with the fruits of righteousness. He says, you being filled. I'm not filling myself with the fruits of righteousness. I am being filled with the fruits of righteousness. And this was already done at the moment of salvation. Paul said, I rejoice that your fellowship is in the gospel from the first time or day until now. I was filled with God's righteousness in the person of Christ at the moment of redemption. But guess what? That righteousness is continually being manifested and understood in my life. And it's the fruits of that righteousness are continually being produced by God's Spirit in me and being worked out. So to clarify, Paul is stating that God has previously, at the time of regeneration, at the time of salvation, filled us with His righteousness. Yet that work of God has produced a present state of being in which our lives continue to yield the fruit of righteousness. Again, those who would say, oh, I'm in fellowship with God. I'm in fellowship with the church. I'm in fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm in fellowship with the gospel. And yet there's no righteousness being demonstrated and manifested. You know what John says about that in his epistle? You are a liar. (laughs) That's what John says. And the truth is not in, don't ever go on will of fortune. So he's saying here, That this righteousness which has been imputed unto us continues to bear its fruit in our lives. And then notice what he says, unto the glory and praise of God. Ultimately, Paul is declaring that the fellowship we share in the gospel has one eternal purpose. You know what that is? Anyone have a guess? The praise, the glory and praise of God. Many times I have reminded you of this truth. The end of all things is the glory of God. Everything God does is for His glory. The end of all things, everything, everything that has been, everything that is, everything that will be in the end. Do you know what its purpose is and what will be accomplished in it? God will be glorified. God is graciously included us in the fellowship of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In doing so, God is accomplishing many things within his people who are the body of Christ, his church. God is providing unity in his church through the fellowship of the gospel. God is producing godly affection within his church through the fellowship of the gospel. God is cultivating spiritual growth in his church through the fellowship of the gospel. And God is producing spiritual fruit in His church through the fellowship of the gospel. You and I aren't doing this. God has privileged us 
in including us in the fellowship of the gospel. And these are the results of being included in the fellowship of the gospel. God is accomplishing all of this. And he does it for one reason. The praise, glory, and the glory of his praise. It's all for his glory. I say to you, we have been privileged to be included in the fellowship of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And look at how God benefits us. He provides all of these benefits to us in the work that he is accomplishing and doing. And one day we will, as Revelation says, we will stand or bow before the throne of God and we will cast our crowns at his feet recognizing he is the only one worthy of such praise and glory because anything that is stood through the fire of the testing of the judgment seat of Christ, anything that's lasted has nothing to do with anything we have done. It's what God has done in us and through us. And therefore we say all glory and honor unto you because you alone are worthy. We're in the fellowship of the gospel. What a privilege it is. And by, might I say this? Of any fellowship that you could be a part of, of any fellowship that you could be associated with, of any group or any gathering, any fellowship at all that you could imagine, of the most elite, of the most prestigious, whatever it may be, the fellowship of the gospel is more excellent. It is superior. Everything else is inferior. 